Chapter Four of Star Hunter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leone Rose. Star Hunter by Andre Norton. Chapter Four. Hume glanced up alertly. There was a bare chance that Brody might have witnessed their arrival and might be coming in now to save them all a great amount of time and trouble by acting the overjoyed, rescued castaway. But he could cite nothing at all in that direction to excite any attention. The distant mountains provided a stark, dark blue background. Up their foothills and lower slopes was a thick furring of trees with foliage of so deep a green as to register black from this distance. And on the level country was the lighter blue-green of the other variety of wood, edging the open country about the river. And there rested the LB. I don't see anything, he snapped, so sharply the little man stared at him in open surprise. Hume forced a quick smile. Just what did you sight, gentle homo starns? There is no large game in the woodlands. This was not an animal hunter, rather a flash of light, just about there. Again he pointed. Sun, Hume thought, could have been reflected from some portion of the LB. He had believed that small spacer so covered with vines, and ringed in by trees, that it could not have been so sighted. But a storm might have disposed of some of nature's cloaking. If so, Starn's interest must be fed, he would make an ideal discoverer. Odd. Hume produced his distance glasses. Just where, gentle homo? There. Starnes obligingly pointed a third time. If there had been anything to see, it was gone now. But it did lie in the right direction. For a second or two, Hume was uneasy. Things seemed to be working too well. His cynical distrust was triggered by fitting so smoothly. Might be the sun, he observed. Reflected from some object, you mean, Hunter. But the flash was very bright. And there could be no mirror surface in there. Surely there could not be. Yes, things were moving too fast. Hume might be overly cautious, but he was determined that no hint of any pre-knowledge of the LB must ever come to these sieves. When they would find the Largo Drift's lifeboat and locate Brody, there would be a legal snarl. The castaway's identity would be challenged by a half-dozen distant and unloving relatives, and there would be an intense inquiry. These sieves must be the impartial witnesses. No, I hardly believe in a mirror in an uninhabited forest, gentle homo, he chuckled. But we are on a hunting planet, and not all its life-forms have yet been classified. You are thinking of an intelligent native race hunter? Chambers, the most demanding of the sieve party, showed up to join them. Hume shook his head. No native intelligence on a hunting world, gentle homo. That is assured before the planet is listed for a safari. However, a bird or flying thing perhaps with metallic plumage or scales to catch the sunlight, might under the right circumstances seem a flash of light. That has happened before. It was very bright, Starn said doubtfully. We might look over there later. Nonsense! Chambers spoke briskly, as one used to overriding the conflicting wishes in any company. I came here for a water-cat, and a water-cat I'm going to have. You don't find those in wooded areas. There will be a schedule, Hume announced. Each of you has signed up, according to contract, for a different trophy. 
You for a water-cat, gentle homo. And you, gentle homo starns, want to make trides of the pit-dragons. While gentle homo yactisi wishes to try electo-fishing in the deep holes. To alternate days is the fair way. And who knows, each of you may discover your own choice near the other man's stake-out. You are quite right, hunter, starns nodded. And since my two colleagues have chosen to try for a water-creature, perhaps we should start along the river. It was two days, then, before they could work their way into the woods. One part of Hume protested. The more cautious section of his mind was appeased. He saw, beyond the three clients now turning over and sorting space-bags, Wasp Man glanced at the woods and then back to Starnes. And being acutely aware of all undercurrents here, Hume wondered what the small sieve had actually seen. The camp was complete, a cluster of seven bubble tents not too far from the ship. At least this crowd did not appear to consider that the hunter was there to do all the serious moving and storing of supplies. All three of the clients pitched in to help, and Wasp Man went down to the river to return with half a dozen silver fins cleaned and threaded on a reed, ready to broil over the cook unit. A fire in the night was not needed except to afford the proper stage setting, but it was enjoyed. Hume leaned forward to feed the flames, and Starnes pushed some lengths of driftwood closer. You have said, Hunter, that hunting worlds never contain intelligent native life. Unless the planet is minutely explored, how can your survey teams be sure of that fact? His voice bordered on the pedantic, but his interest was plain. By using the verifier, Hume sat cross-legged, his plaster hand resting on one knee. Fifty years ago we would have had to keep rather a lengthy watch to be sure of a free world. Now we plant verifiers at suitable test points. Intelligence means mental activity of some sort, any of which would be recorded on the verifier. Amazing! Starnes extended his plump hands to the flames in the immemorial gesture of a human attracted not only to the warmth of the burning wood, but to its promise of security against the forces of the dark. No matter how few or how scattered your native thinkers may be, you record them without missing any? Hume shrugged. Maybe one or two, he grinned might get through such a screening. But we have yet to discover a planet with such a sparse native life as that at the level of intelligence. Yaktisi juggled a cup in and out of the firelight. I agree, this is most interesting. He was a thin man, with scanty, drab-gray hair and dark skin, perhaps the result of the mingling of several human races. His eyes were slightly sunken, so that it was difficult in this light to read their expression. He was, Hume had already decided, a class one brain and observant to a degree which could either be a help or a menace. There have been no cases of failure. None reported, Hume returned. All his life he had relied on machines operating, of course, under the competent domination of men trained to use them properly. He understood the process of the verifier, had seen it at work. At the Guild headquarters there were no records of its failure. He was willing to believe it was infallible. A race residing in the sea now, could you be sure your machine would discover its presence? Starnes continued to question. Hume laughed. Not to be found on Jamala, you may be sure of that. The seas here are small and shallow. Such, not to be picked up by the verifier, would have to exist at great depths and never venture on land. So we need not fear any surprises here. The guild takes no chances. As it always continues to assure one, Yaktisi replied. The hour grows late. I wish you rewarding dreams. 
He arose to go to his own bubble tent. Yes, indeed. Starnes blinked at the fire and then scrambled up in turn. We hunt along the river then, tomorrow? For Watercat, Hume agreed. Of the three, he believed Chambers the most impatient. Might as well let him pot his trophy as soon as possible. The ex-pilot deduced there would be little cooperation in exploration from that client until he was satisfied in his own quest. Rovold, Wasp Man, lingered by the fire until the three sieves were safe in their bubbles. River range tomorrow? he asked. Yes, we can't rush the deal. Agreed. Rovold spoke with a curtness he did not use when the sieves were present. Only don't delay too long. Remember, our boy's roaming around out there. He might just be picked off by something before these stumble-footed sieves catch up with him. That's the chance we knew we'd have to take. We don't dare raise any suspicion. Yaktisi, for one, is no fool. Neither is Starnes. Chambers just wants to get his water-cat, but he could become nasty if anyone tried to steer him. Too long a wait might run us into trouble. Wasp doesn't like trouble. Hume spun around. In the half-light of the fire his features were set, his mouth grim. "'Neither do I, Rovald. Neither do I,' he said softly, but with an icy promise beneath the words. Rovald was not to be intimidated. He grinned. "'Set your fins down, flyboy. You need Wass, and I'm here to hold the stakes for him. This is a big deal. We won't want any misses.' "'There won't be any, not from my side.' Hume stepped away from the fire, approached a post which gleamed with a dull red line of fire down either side. He pressed a control button. That red line flared into a streak of brilliance. Now encircling the bubble tents and the spaceship was a force field. Routine protection of a safari camp on a strange world, and one Hume had set as a matter of course. He stood for a long moment staring through that invisible barrier toward the direction of the wood. It was a dark night. There were scudding clouds to hide the stars, which meant rain probably before morning. This was no time to be plagued by uncertain weather. Somewhere out there, Brody was holed up. He hoped the boy had long ago reached the camp so carefully erected and left for his occupancy. The LB, that stone-covered grave, showing signs of several years' occupancy, was all assembled and constructed to the last small detail. Far less might have deceived the sieves in this safari. But as soon as the story their find leaked, there would be others on the scene, men trained to assess the signs of a castaway's fight for survival. His own guild training and the ability of Wass, renegade Tex should bring them through that test. What had Starnes seen? The glint of sun on the tail of the LB, tilted now to the sky? Hume walked slowly back to the fire, when he saw Rovold going up the ramp into the spacer. He smiled. Did Wass think he was stupid enough not to guess that the Veep's man would be in touch with his employer? Rovald was about to report along some channel of the shadow world that they had landed and that the play was about to begin. Hume wondered idly how far and through how many relays that message would pass before it reached its destination. He stretched and yawned, moving to a sleeping pad. Tomorrow they must find Chambers a water-cat. Hume shoved Brody into the back of his mind, to center his thoughts on the various ways of delivering, to the waiting sportsman, a fair-sized alien feline. The lights in the bubbles went out one by one. Within the circle barrier of the force field, 
men slept, and by midnight the rain began to fall, streaming down the sides of the bubbles, soaking the ashes of the fire. Out of the dark crept that which was not thought, not substance, but alien to the off-world men. But the barrier, meant to deter multi-footed creatures, with wings or no visible limbs at all, proved to be a better protection than its creators had hoped. There was no penetration, only a baffled budding of one force against another. And then the probe withdrew as undetected as it had come. Only the thing which had no intelligence, as humankind rated intelligence, did possess the ability to fathom the nature of that artificial barrier. The force field was examined, its nature digested. First approach had failed. The second was now ready. Ready as it had not been months before, when the first coming of these creatures had alerted the very ancient watchdog on Jumala. Deep in the darker woods on the mountainsides there was a stirring. Things whimpered in their sleep, protested subconsciously commands they could never understand, only obey. With the coming of dawn there would be a marshalling of hosts, a new assault, not on the camp, but on any leaving its protection, and also on the boy now sleeping in a shallow cave formed by the swept roots of a tree, a tree which had crashed when the L.B. landed. Again fortune favored Hume. With the dawn the rain was over. There was a cloudy sky overhead, but he believed the day would clear. The roily, rushing water of the river would aid Chamber's quest. Water cats hold up in the banks, but rising water often forced them out of such dens. A course parallel to the stream bed could well show them the tracks of one of the felines. They started off in a group, Hume leading, with Chambers treading briskly behind him, Roval bringing up the rear in the approved trail technique. Chambers carried a needler. Starnes was unarmed except for a small protection stunner, his tridy box slung on his chest by well-worn carrying straps. Yaktisi shouldered an electric pole, wore its control belt buckled about his middle, though Hume had warned him that the storm would prevent any deep hole fishing. Only a short distance from the campsite they came upon the unmistakable marks of a water cat's broad paws, pressed in so heavy and distinct a pattern that Hume knew the animal could not be far ahead. The indentations were deep, and he measured the distance between them with the length of his hand. "'Big one!' Chambers exclaimed in satisfaction. "'Going away from the river, too!' That point puzzled Hume slightly. The red-coated felines might be washed out of their burrows, but they did not willingly head so sharply away from the water. He squatted on his heels and surveyed the stretch of countryside between them and the distant wood with care. The grass was this season's, still growing not tall enough to afford cover for an animal with paws as large as these prints. There were two clumps of brush. It could have holed up in either, waiting to attack any trailer. But why? It had not been wounded, nor frightened by their party. There was no reason for it to set an ambush on its back trail. Starnes and Yaktisi dropped back, though Starnes was fussing with his tridee. Rovald caught up. He had drawn his ray-tube in answer to Hume's hand-wave, any action foreign to the regular habits of an animal was to be mistrusted. Getting to his feet, Hume paced along the line of marks. They were fresh, hot fresh, and they still led in a straight line for the woods. With another wave of his hand, he stopped Champers. The sieve was trained in spite of his eagerness and obeyed. 
Hume left the tracks, made a detour which brought him to a point from which he could study those clumps of brush. No sign except that line of prints pointed to the woods. And if the party kept on, they might well come upon the L.B. He decided to risk it, but when they were less than a couple of yards from the tree fringe, his hand shot up to direct Chambers to fire toward the quivering bush. Only that formless half-seen thing, hardly to be distinguished in color from the vegetation, was no water-cat. There was a thin, ragged cry. Then the creature plunged backward, was gone. "'What in the name of nine gods was that?' Chambers demanded. "'I don't know,' Hume went forward, jerked the needler dart from a tree-trunk. "'But don't shoot again, not unless you are sure of what you are aiming at.' End of chapter 4